0: Abel, please stand with me once again for another reading from God's Word, Luke chapter 1, our New Testament reading from the Gospels this evening, Luke chapter 1. I'll begin the reading at verse 39 and continue down through verse 56. The latter part of this reading will also serve as the text for a brief sermon this evening. Hear now God's Holy Word, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed." His servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This evening, for just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to reflect with me on verses 54 and 55 in the text that we just read. Let me uh, read those two verses again from this classic prayer of Mary, often called the Magnificat. It's one of the great and central canticles in all of Scripture. She says, "'He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever.'" Let's bow and ask God's blessing as we consider this text. Gracious God, open now our eyes and our hearts. Give us wisdom from above. Give us strength to understand. Illuminate the text and enlighten us all and help us to be built up in faith and helped in the pursuit of holiness, we pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Mary's prayer that is recorded here in Luke chapter 1 during her visit to Elizabeth's house is truly one of the greatest prayers and canticles found in the Bible. When we use the term canticles, uh, sometimes that's used to refer to the book of Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. It also is a category that refers to scripture songs that are not necessarily in the book of Psalms. So when you're you're singing a hymn that is drawn out of scripture, when you're singing the words of scripture in a, a hymnic way, then you are singing a canticle. And this canticle has been sung by the church for the better part of 2,000 years. In fact, if there was a New Testament Psalter, this portion of scripture would certainly have a special place in it. Because what Mary prays here is in fact a psalm. It is a sung prayer given to the church, used by the church as part of their daily prayer for almost two millennia. Mary's words bear a strong resemblance to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Those of you who've been here for a few years may remember that two or three years ago we did a sermon where we just looked at that aspect of it. In both of these two texts we see daughters of Eve celebrating the salvation that Yahweh brings in fulfillment of his promise long ago on the day when creation was cursed. He promised that one day He would bring a Savior into the world. And both Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 and Mary in Luke chapter 1 are reflecting upon that and they are praising God for doing that. Hannah in anticipation, Mary in realization. Paul later in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that women will, quote, be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, in the context of that passage, Paul is making a point about the general role of women within the church who serve Christ in faith and love and holiness, not as church officers, not as preachers, not as teachers, but as godly and submissive women and mothers. But there's also a redemptive historical aspect to what he is saying there. Not every woman will have children, and not every mother will be saved, but everyone who is saved, is saved through the faithful childbearing of Mary, the mother of God, as we just confessed together a moment ago in the Chalcedonian definition. So this evening, I want to reflect for just a few minutes on these last two verses in Mary's song. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Abraham's grandson Jacob was a bit of a rascal in his youth. And by his youth, I mean the first 40 plus years of his life. During that time, he took advantage of his brother Esau, although in doing so, he actually demonstrated greater wisdom and better priorities than his irreverent and carnally minded brother. He then subsequently agreed to deceive his father and to steal an inheritance that should have been his by prophecy by eternal decree but which he was determined to obtain by any means necessary When he fled from the wrath of his brother, Yahweh sends him to work for a man who was more devious and more greedy than Jacob himself had ever been. And the next 20 years were a sanctifying experience in the refining fire of Laban's household for a man who had tried to grasp by his own cunning what God had always been willing to give him by faith. Everything that Jacob is trying to obtain by deception in the first part of his life are things that God has promised to give him. And all Jacob needed to do was just trust God. Just trust God and I will give it. And and Jacob says, no, that's all right. I'll get it myself. Well, the Lord sends him to Laban's house and he teaches him a few lessons there, more than a few perhaps. When Jacob finally flees 20 years later from his father-in-law's estate, he finds himself a wealthy man without a country and with a very uncertain future. Nominally, legally, his father's estate belongs to him, but whether Jacob will live long enough to actually claim that inheritance was an open question. As he journeys back to the land of Canaan, he finds that his brother Esau is on his way to meet him. The Esau that was defrauded by Jacob before his flight 20 years before. And Esau has brought 400 of his men to help him welcome his long-lost brother home. Jacob finds himself on the riverbank at night. Suddenly, as he's thinking about all of this, attacked by a stranger who then engages him in a grappling match until the break of day. The stranger leaves Jacob disabled and defeated And many people misread that passage in Genesis chapter 32, imagining that Jacob has the angel of the Lord, whose name is Wonderful. He has him in some kind of a submission hold. And Jacob actually wins that fight. He doesn't win anything. His hip is dislocated. He can't put weight on his leg. All he can do is cling to the Lord, who is there and who has mastered him. He clings in faith, finally, to the God who has been faithful to him, for so long. And that night Yahweh changed Jacob's name. He changes it from Jacob, which meant supplanter, the one who advances himself by grasping the heel of the one in front of him and pulling him down. He changes his name to Israel. And why? Because God says you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. But again, how does he prevail? He doesn't prevail by out wrestling the Lord. He doesn't prevail by out conniving his brother or his father or even Laban. Not by scheming, not by deception, not by physical strength or resourcefulness. Jacob, who is now Israel, prevails by sovereign grace and divine providence and persistent, albeit imperfect, faith. And from that time on, not only is Jacob known as Israel, but God's people are known as Israel. And at first, this was an ethnic, a national title for the descendants of Jacob who were in covenant with God. But it becomes a sign of the true identity for all who trust in God and who, like Jacob, are led out of lives of deception, out of lives in which they rely upon their own strength to finally receive divine blessing through persistent faith alone. If you are a believer, you are not to be a Jacob, but rather an Israelite. One who has wrestled with God and with men, but who has prevailed not by your strength, not by your cunning, but rather by faith in the God of grace." through 20 years of hard labor and mistreatment in Laban's house, through several generations of slavery and violence in Egypt, through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then through years of Roman occupation and a corrupt priesthood and religious sectarianism that did not serve the people of Israel well, God remembered His mercy. He has remembered His mercy. But what is mercy? Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. That's what mercy is in the Bible. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. But mercy is not receiving what you do. You think of Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That is mercy. And that was true in Jacob's life, it was true in Israel's history. It was true when Mary prayed these words, and it is still true today. God has remembered His mercy to His people. As Paul will later say, even though we are faithless, He remains faithful. Even though we scheme and grasp and try to succeed in our own strength, Yahweh is faithful to keep His promises. And the way that we see that is in that He does not give us what we deserve, Instead, He gives us Jesus. He does not bring upon us the full consequences that that our sin would ordinarily require. He he gives us a taste sometimes of those consequences. But look at your life. How many ways could it have been so much worse? How How many close escapes have you had in every way? I mean, many of us, we we should probably be dead because of some of the foolish things that we've done. Maybe in jail, certainly not have family, certainly not be part of a church where we're surrounded by people who love us. God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. He has remembered His mercy to His people. Christ is the mercy of God. Christ the Savior rather than the Judge. Christ the Redeemer, rather than our Destroyer. And if you don't think that the meek and mild and gentle Jesus would come to judge and destroy, then you need to acquaint yourself with what He does as the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Because the Son of God prior to the Incarnation is the Destroyer who comes from heaven and lays waste the enemies of God, including the enemies found in the nation of Israel. And it gives some redemptive historical context to the reminder that the first time Jesus comes for salvation, the last time He comes for judgment. And that is a terrifying thing. So if your vision of Jesus is as a shampoo model who is just kind of friends with everyone, loves puppies and kittens, would never harm anything, you need to get acquainted with the biblical Jesus. The Son is a holy and righteous avenger who executes God's wrath and justice on evildoers. But He has not come to bring vengeance on us. That's what Mary says. God could have judged us in that way. He should have judged us if He were practicing strict justice. But He has not. He has remembered His mercy to His people. He has come to take God's justice upon Himself. He has come to let vengeance fall upon His own head to satisfy the penalty that we deserve because of our sin to deliver us from wrath and to save us. That is mercy. That is the love of God that John extols in the passage that we read earlier this evening. What Mary prayed and sang about that day in Elizabeth's house was the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy. It had been more than 700 years since Isaiah prophesied of the suffering servant who would come to save God's people. It had been a thousand years since God promised David that one of his descendants would be God's own son and would sit on David's throne forever. It had been 1500 years since Moses said that the Lord would raise up a prophet like him who would speak God's truth fully, perfectly, and powerfully. And it had been about 4,000 years since God had promised that from Eve's seed would come a serpent slayer to crush the enemy and to bring redemption to the sin-cursed world. Christmas, in other words, is the culmination of a very long story. It is the story of the world. Everything that has happened prior to the coming of Christ anticipated His arrival and demonstrated our need for Him. Everything since then has happened under Christ's reign and in the light of the open tomb from which our Lord emerged victoriously on the third day. That is truly the turning point of creational history. And we would be fools not to recognize that. We look around us and see evil and injustice, violence and oppression, immorality and unbelief, and perhaps we wonder what difference Christ's coming made at all But what you are seeing is the desperation of a serpent dragon who received a mortal wound and is now bleeding out. As we read this morning in Revelation chapter 12, he knows that his time is short. The devil knows that he's been defeated even if you don't. As Dane read a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I think a lot of Christians think there will be an end. There will be a termination. Things will get worse and worse and worse and finally Jesus will come back and solve it cataclysmically. But that's not what the Bible says as it turns out. It says just the opposite. The government will rest upon His shoulders to bring judgment and justice and the increase of His government will continue unabated, without end. Deal with that. Deal with that. You're not allowed to be puddle glum in this story. You're supposed to be confident. You're supposed to be people that know what time it is. It's about time for that dragon to die. What you are seeing right now is the outworking of God's promise to our fathers long ago. And we may be a long way from the end of this part of the story, but we need to recognize what part of the story we're in nevertheless Because we do not know the scriptures or the power of God, we worry and fear and wonder at the way that things are going in this world or perhaps in our own lives. We feel discouragement and even despair, but only because we do not understand the story that we are living in. Christ has come, just as God promised our fathers, and He has overcome Salvation has arrived in the person of God's Son. The King has taken His throne and is now making war against all of His and our enemies. So of course, there is violence. And like Jesus is making war right now. What did you expect that to look like? Of course, there is rebellion and chaos. The King is at war, but the victory has been won. God has remembered His mercy. He has called us Israel the ones who struggled with God and with men, and yet who continued to prevail by humble submission and faith. John, in the very next chapter, after the one Dane read from tonight, in 1 John chapter 5, says, Who is it that overcomes the world? What is it that overcomes this world? It's our faith. It's everyone who believes in Jesus. That's how you overcome, is by being Israel, not Jacob. We are characters in his story. We're living out scenes written long ago in a heavenly book and prophetically announced to our fathers. This story is full of action and drama and excitement, but there should be no suspense or fear about how it ends. When you're reading The Lord of the Rings, or The Pilgrim's Progress, or The Chronicles of Narnia, and you are at a climactic moment of conflict where the tension seems so great that you're just on the edge of your seat You're not wondering, how is it going to end this time? Unless it's the first time you've ever read it. Instead, if you've read it multiple times, as you should, with all of those books, you'll be saying, I love this part. I love this part. Because watch what's about to happen. Well, that's where we are in the story. I love this part. Watch what God is about to do. Mary prays like someone who understands the story that she's in. He has remembered his mercy, but she says to Abraham and to his seed forever. We are the children of Abraham, and it is to Abraham and his offspring, his seed, that God has remembered his mercy and will continue to remember it forever. The Scripture says this, Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Can I read that again to you? Know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, "In you all the nations shall be blessed." So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. This is not about drawing out ethnic identities. This is not about uh, category sociological categories. This is not about identifying national status. This is about understanding a theological term. Sons of Abraham is not an ethnic term. Sons of Abraham is not a national identity. It's a theological category. It's a covenantal category. And those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And God preached the gospel to Abraham. That promise in Genesis 22, when Isaac is spared and the ram with his head caught in thorns is placed on the altar instead. You see the imagery. God says, in your seed, all families of the earth will be blessed. And Paul says, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Not the four spiritual laws, not some evangelistic presentation about what you need to do in order to save your soul. That's the gospel. God's promise that Christ would come and bring a blessing to all nation families. Still in Galatians chapter 3, later in the same chapter, verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There it is again. If you are in Christ, united to Christ, engrafted into Christ, then you are connected to Abraham. This is a covenantal category. And God has remembered His mercy to Abraham and to his offspring. And that is you, if you believe in Jesus. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter two, verses 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul is not trying to erase the Jewish nation as an ethnic group. He says, I myself am a Jew in this same epistle. I love my kinsmen. I want to save my countrymen. I care about my family. But he's saying we are dealing here with a covenantal category with a theological category. We're not talking about nation identity here. We're talking about God's blessings to the children of Abraham and who are they? It is those who have Abraham's faith. It is those who trust in the promise that God would save people in every nation of the world. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are part of this great story that Mary was living in and singing about. Now, if you're not a believer, you are also part of the story, but you don't get to be one of the good guys in it. And you want to be one of the good guys in this story. You really do. Those who have faith in Christ are sons of God. Those who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have put on Christ like a robe, Paul says. And if you belong to Christ, then you are one of Abraham's descendants spiritually, even if not biologically. You are covenantally and spiritually Jewish. And you are an heir of those promises God made to our father, Abraham. The Lord promised Abraham that his descendants would be multiplied like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. That was a promise that the dominion mandate given to Adam at creation would be accomplished. What does God say in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What does he want the world full of? Little biological creatures that don't worship God. That's what we want, right? Is a globe full of secularists? No, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, means bring your family into such abundance that the world will be full of the glory of God as it is full of worshipers, As it's full of people of faith. That promise, that command is going to be fulfilled. That's, that's the promise God gives to Abraham. He says, your descendants Abraham are going to be like the stars of heaven. You can't count them. Like the grains of sand on the seashore. Try. Count them. That's You think the number of the saved is going to be small? Have you read these promises? But you see, the New Testament says these promises are talking about you. You are the sons of Abraham. You are the answer to that promise. Fill the earth. But the promise is going to be fulfilled through Abraham's family. Abraham has promised that his descendants would be given the land of Canaan and would possess the gate of their enemies But Israel's prayers in the Psalms, the prophets of the Old Testament, and Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament make clear that the land of Canaan was only a type or a sign of the promise that God's people would inherit the entire earth. What's happening there is a down payment on a much larger project. And if you're reading the Psalms, and you're studying the Old Testament prophetic literature, if you're reading your New Testaments, you're seeing the way that that Abrahamic promise is being applied and expanded. Canaan was the down payment. It was not the full payment. And this part of the Abrahamic promise was also connected to the dominion mandate. Remember, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill Canaan. Fill the, fill the little land, the little strip of land on the, the shore of the Mediterranean. No, fill the earth and subdue it. That command given by God to the human race would not be unfulfilled. Christ would fulfill it. And he would bring those promises to fruition in the experience of the children of Abraham who would then be heirs of those same promises. And the third part of that Abrahamic promise was that by his seed, all nation families of the earth would be blessed. And these promises were never meant only for ethnic Jews. They are for Jews and Gentiles, for men and women, for rich and poor, for the powerful and the powerless. The Lord raises up the Jewish people, not so that He can restrict blessings only to them forever, but so that through them as a people, the whole world might join the family of Abraham. The whole world comes in through the Jewish people from whom Jesus comes. And then all of the families of the earth receive the blessing and promises given to the father of the faithful and to his offspring because now they've all become sons of Abraham. By the way, just as a complete aside, this is where the error of the Judaizers comes in. It's because they understood this biblical theology that that modern evangelical Christians don't know. They understood it. They said, no, like the blessing is through the Abrahamic line. You have to be part of the family of Abraham, so of course you have to be circumcised. Not enough to be baptized, you have to be circumcised. That's where that Judaizing error comes from. And And it makes sense in a way. There is a certain logic to it. That's why it got traction in the early church. That's why the Jerusalem council has to deal with it. That's why Paul has to deal with it. It's because there's a certain logic to that. It's, yes, I, I need to be baptized to be a Christian. I need to be circumcised to be part of the Abrahamic lineage because that's how these promises are fulfilled. But no, Jesus has come and he has opened the doors of the kingdom of God to all. Whosoever will may come. You do not have to be born as a Jew. You do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to restrict yourself to the diet and religious calendar of the Old Testament law. You simply must believe in Jesus. We show ourselves to be true children of Abraham when we receive God's promises in faith and trust in the promise maker who is incarnate in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's the application of these couple of lines in the Magnificat that we so often sing, and maybe you pray in daily prayer on a regular basis. Well, the application is this. God remembers His mercy, and so should you. God remembers His mercy to His people. He remembers His promise to the human race in the garden when He foretold that from among Eve's seed, one would arise to slay the serpents. He remembers his promise to Abraham that his descendants would multiply like the stars of heaven, would fill and subdue the earth, the gates of their enemies, and then would bring a blessing to all nation families. He remembers his promise to David that one of his sons would sit on the throne of an everlasting kingdom and would himself be God's own son. And God remembers all of these promises and every other one. And in many ways, these various promises throughout Scripture are in fact one. They are facets of the same promise. Promise. That's why Paul can refer in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 to the covenants, plural, of promise. Singular. Covenants, plural, of a singular promise. Because all these various promises are aspects of the central promise. They're aspects of the same plan of redemption. They're all part of the mercy that God has shown to His people and His Son. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That is His mercy. He has not given us the judgment we deserve. Instead, He has given us Jesus. God remembers His mercy, and so should you this Christmas season and every day throughout the year. Now, when the Bible says that God remembers, it is not referring to recalling information in His mind. For God to remember is for Him to summon up a promise and act according to His covenant grace, on behalf of His people. You can check this all through your Bible. God is frequently remembering things and every time it's the same. He's summoning up a promise. He says, this thing that I said, watch. And then He goes to work. God is all-knowing. He does not have to use mnemonic devices to recall what He promised to who, when. He summons up the promise and He acts. That's how He remembers. There is a difference then between God remembering His mercy and us, his people, remembering his mercy. One is an action, the other is a recollection. One is saving, one is being saved. We are the recipients of God's remembrance. And hopefully many of you by now are seeing the way in which that is embedded into the communion service that Jesus gives us in what we call the Lord's Supper. This is the remembrance of me. But it's not you that's remembering, it's God who's remembering you and what He has promised to you as He sees the blood of His Son. On the other hand, there is an active aspect to our remembering God's mercy. We are to remember what He has done and rest in that work and rejoice in His grace and then live in the light and strength of it. We don't just recollect that it's there. We rest our souls in that mercy. I am a great sinner... Jesus is a greater Savior. He has remembered, His. if you're praying this in daily prayer, and if you're not, maybe you want to start, He has remembered His mercy to His people every day. You're reciting that in prayer before the throne. You're resting in it. You're rejoicing in it. And then you're going out to live your day in light of that, in the strength of that. Our celebration of Christmas and of every Lord's Day should be self-consciously and deliberately covenantal, and historical. We are not coming as individuals to the divine service of worship. We are not coming as separate atomistic creatures to sing Christmas hymns at this time of year. We are coming as God's people. We are coming as the children of Abraham, and that does not mean your salvation is not personal. It absolutely means it's not private. It is very personal. It is never private. It's not about you and Jesus. It's about us coming together as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as the temple of God, crying out our father, not my daddy, our father who art in heaven. And so that worship is always self-consciously historical and covenantal. And Christmas, whether it's tonight or tomorrow or in a couple of days when everybody gets off work and is able to make it to your house, whenever that happens, it needs to be that way. It needs to be that way. You're remembering his mercy to his people, to Abraham and to his offspring. Not just to me. You can remember. You can go around the room. You can go around the Christmas dinner table and say, how has God been merciful to you in the last year since the last Christmas? It's perfectly fine. But God has been merciful to us, to all of us, to his people the children of Abraham, his church, bought with the blood of his son. That's how we are coming. We're coming as the family of Abraham. We're coming in communion with the saints of many generations who have gone before. We are singing prayer every day with Mary. Now, not to Mary. Like some of you are thinking, oh, what kind of a church am I visiting here tonight? <laughs> no, we're Protestant church. Right? So you're not, singing, you're, you're not singing to Mary. You're not praying to Mary. You're not praying through Mary. You are singing with her. And it's right there in your Westminster Confession of Faith, by the way, if you're curious about this, right? Communion of the saints, yeah. That's more than just the people sitting in this room. That's more just than the churches in your presbytery. That's more than just the churches in your denomination or in Napark or the the evangelical-ish churches throughout the world. No. It's communion with the saints across the board. Throughout the nation, throughout the countries of the world, and throughout time. Both in heaven and on earth. We are receiving and rejoicing in God's promises with David, with Jacob, with Abraham, and with our first parents in the garden, who also get to enjoy the presence of God right now, even though they lost it in Genesis 3. Most of you will be sharing gifts in the next day with your family, but God has already given us the greatest gift imaginable, and truthfully, it is greater than any of us ever have or can imagine. It's it's more than whatever you're thinking about. You say, I can can imagine a lot. God is able to do far more. The gift of salvation in Christ is mercy from God. And what you deserve to be given is eternal wrath. What you deserve and what I deserve is to be damned. Because you are a sinner and so am I. And no matter how good you think you are, no matter how many good deeds or religious acts you imagine are to your credit, the truth is that you cannot save yourself. And neither can I. No one can. We need Jesus. And that is the good news. The good news is that Jesus has come. The offspring of Abraham, the son of David, the true Israel, Eve's long-awaited son who has come to crush the head of the serpent. So my plea to you is to receive him this Christmas season. You say, I've already received him. I've already done, done that. I'm good. You used to hear that all the time in the South. Everybody's a Christian in the South. Whether they have any credible profession of faith or not, receive Him this Christmas season. Receive Him in faith and with a thankful heart. Oh, come, let us adore Him, not just now, but now and forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together. Gracious God, apply this word to our hearts, make us glad, give us joy and peace through believing in Jesus, help this Christmas season and the celebrations that are a part of it to truly be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you that will bring glory and honor to your great name. Bless us and keep us, O Lord, in that same grace and in celebration of that mercy forever. We ask in Jesus' holy name, amen.